Welcome to Millennial Money Minutes, where we tackle tough personal finance topics in five minutes or less. With your host, Grant from MillennialMoney.com and Matt from DistilledDollar.com. Hey everyone, we're super stoked today. We have Helene Olin, who is the author of, gosh, one of the best books on money that I've read recently, Pound Foolish. She's also the co-author of The Index Card, which is also a great book, and currently uh, a writer and columnist for The Nation. Um, I was so blown away when I read Pound Foolish that I just had to reach out to Helene and get her on the podcast. Helene, um, thanks for, for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me on. So tell us a little bit about Pound Foolish. I mean, just it, it literally blew my mind. I mean, I've been super skeptical of a lot of the big personal finance thinkers myself. Um, I was a big Susie Orman fan just early on. And then the more I learned about her, you know, there's certainly some great wisdom in what she says. But, you know, there's a number of suspect things. And you really took this uh, challenge head on and tried to dig in uh, to a lot of what the personal finance industry is about and really dispel some of the myths that are shared. Can you tell us a little bit about a, what motivated you to do the project, and B, what the book is about in your, in your eye. Sure. Um, about 20 years ago, I got a call one day uh, from somebody at a major newspaper in Los Angeles. and I was a freelance writer at the time. And the call went something like this. We need somebody to sub in at the money makeover feature for a week or two. Can you know anything about personal finance? And they quoted me the price. Um, and what I knew about personal finance could be summed up pretty basically. I, I knew that taking an article, an assignment, that paid twice my normal rate was a really good idea. So that, I sort of felt, qualified me as a personal finance expert. <laughs> sure, right? right? Being an exceptionally mature 30-year-old at the time. Um, I said, sure, I'll take this on. And I thought I was going to do a one-off, and that was going to be the end of it. So I take the assignment, and I you know, literally run out and buy a bunch of personal finance books at Barnes & Noble and Bookstore, if you remember them. And I am literally like writing down terms as I'm doing the interviews, spelling them phonetically because I really don't know what the heck they are. And I hand it in, and I um, people just loved it because to cover my my tracks, I basically started asking a lot of questions about people's personal lives, right, and filling you know in the details of their lives with money. So anyway, I ended up getting this gig and ended up keeping it for several years. Is the very short story, and. I thought about it a lot over the years after, um, and then really in the post-Great Recession world, really tried to come to grips with what it had all meant, right? Because by that point, we kind of knew personal finance wasn't quite what we'd been sold. At the time, we were always told, oh, you know, fund your IRA, put money in the stock market, and all will be well. Um, Have an emergency fund. And of course, as we know, that has not turned out well for many people. For many, many people, their emergency fund can't cover a six-month period of unemployment. Um, salaries are below what they were. Uh, median household income is below what it was in 2000. At the same time, the cost of housing, health care, and education has gone up at rates well beyond that of inflation. So Pound Foolish was kind of my attempt to find out what it all meant and how it had been sold to us and why we believed it. So doing all this research, what are two or three uh, money truths that people can actually live by? I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, you dug so deep, you know, what, what, what were the nuggets that are the good pieces of advice in your opinion? Well, I mean, the Pound Foolish wasn't so much about trying to find advice as it was 
trying to understand why we believed personal finance could save our lives or our, our, you know, our economic lives, right? Because the way personal finance kind of came in is the substitute. You won't have, you know, your salary isn't going to keep up with inflation, but that's okay because you can invest your way to success, right? And that's really not true unless you have extraordinarily good luck and um, you earn a decent sum of money, right? But that being said, of course, there is basic advice that is worth following. One of the things I found while writing Pound Foolish was that the investment and personal finance industry was essentially making a mint off of our desperation and off of our ignorance. And so, in fact, one of the things we know is if you're going to invest, you should always invest in simple index funds. And the reason is pretty basic. Less than 1% of us, and that includes that 1%, all money managers, all mutual fund managers, all hedge fund people, have the ability to outguess the markets year in and year out. So all they're gonna do is run up your expenses and eat it away at your profits, right? This is often not told to people, right? You go seek advice, it's always, oh, I've got the secret. Common sense should tell you if somebody's got the secret, why on earth are they telling you it, right? But that's not what we've been sold. Absolutely, I, I would say, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the themes we, I found in your book, it reminded me a little bit of that, uh, of an older book, or another book, uh, Where the Customer's Yachts. And it, it is, right. It is kind of a little scary to think how much money is being made, again, by people trying to make money for other people instead of, again, you know, and then instead they just sort of keep it in their own pockets. But then I guess from from your research into the book, I guess what were some of the, the, the themes that you noticed for people when they went to, um, when they kind of went to that dark side of the financial, you know, advice, in, you know, that industry? Because what I've seen is uh, people sort of basically look at it as, People who study money, it's kind of like another thing you study, sort of like how a doctor studies, you know, the body for surgeries. And so they sort of see it as a very black and white system, and they sort of, therefore, put a lot of trust, kind of like how we put our trust in our doctors sometimes. So, I get, yeah, so what were some of the themes that maybe you saw in terms of what people were looking for? And, and how did, I would say, how did the industry kind of market to those, to what the, the you know, the, the people were looking for? Um, that's a really good point. The doctor analogy is really important. Um, when most people seek financial advice, they seem to be under the impression that they're going to the, somebody who has the, the essential equivalent of a Hippocratic Oath to them, right? And you know, they're going to always act in their best interests, and they're going to take care of them. And in fact, this is simply untrue. Maybe 20% of financial advisors have that sort of duty. It's called the fiduciary standard, and it depends on how they were credentialed. But most of them do not, and with the not-so-surprising result, they don't act as though they do. And they will often give advice that is not in people's best interest, but is most certainly in the best interest of their own wallet, I mean the financial advisor's wallet. And the reason they can do this is because many of them work to something called the suitability standard, which means you can sort of just, as long as the advice is sort of good enough, it's kind of okay. It's sort of like... You know, I wear a size four dress, but I could like get into a size eight and just have it hemmed and kind of let it hang off of me. But it wouldn't look cool, right? <laughs> Whereas a size twelve would like look ridiculous, right? And that's sort of the same thing. And of course, they're making a mint, and it's costing people their savings, a, a huge chunk of their savings. The estimates are it might be costing people, you know, billions, about eighteen billion dollars a year annually. It's crazy. Seventeen, eighteen. I can't can't remember the exact number. And the Obama administration has tried to crack down, tried to crack down on it, 
and now um, it's all sort of on hold in the Trump administration. It's not clear what's going to happen next. Um, other things I found, women get much worse advice than men, which was kind of fascinating. And in fact, there's a whole sideline where women are, you know, they're too emotional to manage their money and they should turn it over to financial advisors who are going to really help them out, right? And in fact, people who study it find that actually financial advisors give worse advice to women than men, which is one of those more fascinating little nuggets um, that, that's out there. Um, financial literacy turns out to be a complete um, fraud, basically. Um, it's all but unteachable. It's a moving target. And it's basically something that has been marketed by the financial services industry in part to get them off the hook for the financial crisis, but also as a way around regulation, right? It's a lot easier to say, oh, we'll teach them how to read that 100-page single-space mortgage um, with, all these gotcha, uh, with all these gotcha clauses instead of we won't do that, right? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, especially about uh, women. I, I read a book from David Bach about smart women to finish rich, and it's very scary, all the stats that are out there. Um, and just the simple fact that typically, you know, in, in many relationships, the man's going to end up, uh, you know, biting the, the dust, you know, a little earlier. And so naturally, I feel like everyone should have a, a responsibility. And I love how you approach it, too, where you say, look, at, at the beginning of the day, nobody knows really about money. We're both terrible at it, you know, men and women. I love that approach. Yeah, I think one of the encouraging trends I have noticed, uh, I've been tracking this year in terms of the money book releases, and 72% of the money book new releases on Amazon have been written by women, um, which I think is a pretty fascinating trend. Um, and I'm actually, I'm writing a book now on Penguin uh, as well, not on Portfolio, but on Avery. And I'm actually writing um, very much in the vein of Pound Foolish in the sense that my personal story, I went from $2 uh, to a million dollar net worth in five years, primarily driven by index fund uh, investing, but also with some individual tech and stock equities. But really the only way that that's possible is if you make a lot of money. And so I'm actually on the tail end writing to you know younger and newer investors about how you know this is really only possible if you actually make money. You can't essentially frugal your way uh, in, in, you know, to, to millionaire status in, 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 a, in a rapid pace. So um, I really appreciate everything that you've done and everything that you've written. And it was super inspiring to just read how, you know, you know, just really shed light and remove the veil uh, more than anything on what I very much view as as a predatory industry. And that's one of the conflicting uh, things that we face being personal finance bloggers ourselves with our podcast is we always want to make sure to be realistic about what is and isn't possible, as well as just try to dispel the myths. And I think that's one of the things that's encouraging about um, some of the younger writers and investors out there. Well, well, thank you. I mean, I agree. I mean, and it, it's, you know, it's not just simply that you have more money. You can also take more risk with more money, right? That's the thing. You can take it on because you can afford to lose it if it all goes wrong, right? I would disagree with you. I would never encourage people to play around with individual stocks. We can let that go for a minute. The fact is, is it's really kind of a rich man's or a rich woman's game, right? Yep. Because you need to be able to have the backup to lose the money. Um, and one of the things you find in the surveys of risk is there's this whole idea that women take on less risk than men. But when you actually dig down deep into it, what's going on is, is first of all, when you adjust for income, a lot of that vanishes in, investment, in investments at least. And secondarily, men are much more secure in the fact that they will 
be able to earn back their losses than women, which they actually make sense. Men do earn more than women, and they do have the ability, more likely than not, to earn that money back versus a woman, right? I mean, the issue with women is that women, you know, earn less, live longer, and are expected to do more with their money because they're frequently responsible for elder care, child care, et cetera. And the response of the industry is to tell them to save more, which is kind of um, like the old uh, Ann Richards line about Ginger Rogers, how she did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in high-heeled shoes. Um, it's not really possible. So I think what would you recommend? I mean, obviously, we're huge proponents of index fund investing and totally take your point on individual equities. Um, I take about 10% of my portfolio only and invest in individual equities and was very fortunate to start my investing career in 2010. So I've been completely lucky and acknowledge the fact that I've benefited from an insane bull market as well as just the rise of Amazons and the Facebooks of the world uh, that I've been able to profit. So that's something that might not be replicatable and I'm very open to that. But the big challenge with index fund investing is, um, you know, just for short-term investments, um, you know, if you're going to need the money in three to five years, um, obviously there's a lot of swing that can happen in that time period. Can you talk a little bit about short-term investing and what you recommend? Um, if you're going to need the money in three to five years, I'd put it in short-term bond fund and walk away. Um, you should simply never invest in the stock market for a three to five-year period. It's just not. It could go up, and you guys are all in your 20s, right? You millennials? I mean, you don't really remember what could happen. It could go down 40% in one year and has. And I would tell anybody not to do that. You need the money. It stays cash or it stays in, you know, in short-term bond funds. Period. The end. I mean, you could do well. I mean, if you'd made that decision in 2012, you're pretty, you know, you're pretty okay in 2017. You made that decision, you know, in 2008, and you needed the money in 2010. You were kind of screwed, frankly. So I would urge no. I would not urge anyone to do that. Yeah, and there's there's of course with a lot of younger investors. I just had a friend who graduated college yesterday um, and she got a great job, but she's really worried about investing just because the market is so expensive uh, right now. And a lot of millennials are just afraid to invest because of this bull run. Um, they don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of volatility. What advice can you give younger investors who are afraid of the market uh, and investing in general? It goes back to that idea of you're not going to outguess the market. 1% of us have the ability to do that year in and year out. You're never going to guess when it's going to be high and when it's going to be low. I know nobody who predicted where we are right now, right? Um, if I recall correctly, everybody thought Donald Trump's going to get elected and the markets are going to crash, right? I mean, so my advice would be to just get started. Make it automatic, put aside whatever you can afford a month, and really don't think about it. Because you can't stop the market from doing what the market will do. The other thing I will say is, is of course it's no guarantee. I think there's this idea out there right now, and it's come back now, that the markets have been up for so long. You know, the idea that, oh, you know, markets are, you know, stock markets that we're about 8% average annual returns and don't worry about it. You know, we don't know that that will continue. Right? That's a great point. There are people who Absolutely. say it will. There are people who say it won't. The fact is you're reading tea leaves, right? Um, saying it will continue, frankly, to me, has always been the equivalent of sitting in a European cafe in the spring of 1914 saying, gee, we haven't had a continent-wide war in 100 years. What are the odds? Um, in fact, they were quite good, right? On the other hand, it's not like you're going to outguess it anyway, right? 
what we know right now is the market does this. Your chances of doing better than that are not great. Um, in fact, your chances of doing worse than that are, are much great. Um, you, your chosen investment can go down 10% and you know, another investment can go down 30%. There's no predicting it. This seems to be the method that works for most people. Yeah, um, yeah and I'd love to ask this question. I've been thinking about it. So one of the most essential elements obviously of just finance and personal finance in general is the savings rate and one of the things that i always harp on is that a vast majority of what's written in mainstream media and just in personal finance books the idea that you you know saving five to maybe 10 or 15 percent of your income you know will get you to retirement which is completely given the volatility uh, and potential outcomes untrue um, what's the ideal savings rate in your recommendation and do you agree that 15 percent is not enough this is a very good question. I, in the index card, Harold Pollock and I told people to strive to for 10 to 20 percent. Very basic reason: the odds of people doing more than that are infinitesimal. Okay, our savings rate is just under six percent right now. This is among the highest it's been since 1980. Okay, um, when it was 10 percent. Americans traditionally are not a high savings rate country. So to tell people an impossible goal doesn't seem to encourage anybody to do anything. It simply gets them to throw up their hands in despair. And in fact, I would make a strenuous argument and have and will write here that rather than hounding people about saving for retirement, you'd be better off taking your time and hounding politicians into raising the rate of, of Social Security so that people get more money, so that they're not reliant on chance and they're not reliant on the fact um, that of putting aside money that they probably don't have to put aside for retirement. That's a, yeah, that's I, a great. I, I oh, find sorry, it very ahead. hard to believe that many people have that, that much money to put aside. That being said, the answer is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. People run numbers all sorts of different ways. Everybody comes up with different numbers. They tend to come up with higher numbers in like 2010 when the market is lower. That was when you saw a lot of the maybe you need 20 percent. Um, when the market's going well and real estate is up, you'll see, oh, you know, 10%, maybe even a little bit less. Um, so it's kind of a moving target of a number. Uh, yeah, it's a great point on the savings rate. Um, and like you said, uh, you know, 401ks, you know, these sort of retirement accounts, they were set up for a purpose. And a lot of these just really haven't, you know, lived up to the hope and the hype that they were promised when they were initiated. Uh, just... um, I'm going to interrupt right there. I mean, there was the hope and hype and what they're being used for now are two completely different things. 401ks were never meant to be a solution to retirement savings. They were basically started as a tax dodge for corporate executives, and then they kind of got expanded to other people um, thanks to a ruling by, um, by the Reagan administration very early in uh, Ronald Reagan's time in office. But e even when that ruling was made, they were meant to be a supplement to pensions and a supplement to Social Security. Nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that they were going to end up being a, um, the primary way they were going, people were expected to finance retirement. There's a reason they don't work. They weren't meant to cover retirement savings. It's absurd. Um, there's, it's sort of like buying you know, a luxury dress and expecting to be able to you know, go work in the garden in it. It's absurd. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great uh, extra point there, designed initially not to be you know, a full coverage of retirement. So, so for the people listening right now, I think um, if anyone had a, a personal advisor, I think they're getting a little scared right now, maybe you know, starting to wonder, should I ask them if they're a fiduciary or, you know, what would yes, be? Yes, what, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. 
So what, what would is that the is that the is that the next step you'd recommend, or do you recommend people try to do as much as them as the you know do it yourself? Try to you know do as much in in house as possible to eliminate or reduce fees as much as possible, or you know what's sort of been your recommendation in terms of what people should do instead of you know running away entirely from their money management. I mean, the thing I found is it's not uh, it's pretty easy to do it yourself, but a lot of people aren't going to do it. So by definition, you're probably better off with a manager if you're not going to do it on your own, right? That's sort of about a certain amount of common sense, and I hope you just didn't hear my dog. Um, hold on one second. Hold on. <laughs> no worries. Katie, I'm being I'm on a podcast. <laughs> um, I think you heard you. We have like cats <laughs> swatting at us. So we have cats like swatting at us over here. People, many people, frankly, are not going to do it by themselves, right? They're always going to put it off for another day. So by definition, they're probably better off with an advisor. But it has to be an advisor whose duty is to them, not somebody whose duty is to lining their own, first duty is to lining their own pockets. That's just a certain amount of common sense here. And it's pretty easy to ask. I mean, you simply, it's one of these questions. I mean, one of the things that gets, that gets asked to me, of me a lot is, God, I feel so awkward asking this question. I mean, here's the thing. If you're dealing with an advisor who does have a duty to act in your best interest, the best practices standard, they sometimes call it too, they're going to be thrilled to hear that question because that's part of their marketing, right? Like, I, I'm going to do, I'm going to act in your best interest, right? That's my legal duty, right? That's not an awkward question. The, the, the awkwardness is when you find somebody whose duty has sort of led you to believe they have a legal duty to act in your best interest, and they don't. That's when it starts getting awkward. And really, you don't need a financial advisor who you, it's going to be awkward with, right? I'll You're say, yeah, paying that. I'll say in that scenario, I, too, if it, if it got awkward, I think that that's an immediate sign that, yeah, he's not a fiduciary, she's not a fiduciary, you know, maybe I, I should you know, open up a new conversation with somebody else. Huh. Right, and I would add, if they make you feel awkward about any question, really, you should probably consider opening a, conversa opening a conversation with somebody else. You're the paying customer, right? You're the person getting advice. Uh, they should make you feel comfortable. And in journalism, we have a saying, there are no stupid questions, only stupid reporters. And the same is probably true <laughs> for people who are investing. You're, you, you're allowed to ask questions. It's good to ask questions. Um, hilariously, the more questions you ask, the more you're protecting yourself from fraud. Um, you know, Bernie Madoff used to like, refuse to take people on who were asking too many questions or would return their money um, because... Why do you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think one of the things that, you know, that um, I don't know how much, you know, touch you have with, you know, people like us. I mean, our podcast, our reach is pretty, um, you know, our listeners are pretty woke in the sense that, you know, more and more millennials, I think, are trying to manage their money uh, by themselves. And obviously, there's there's a lot more tools and apps and things available that and, and a lot more information, not necessarily good information, but more information that makes that possible. And I'd really encourage you. One of the things that's really interesting is amongst all of our crew, you know, the average savings rate is more in like the 40 to 50 percent range, even though incomes are still low, because more and more younger uh, investors and workers are under understanding that they're going to need to do things very differently uh, than their parents did. And that's one of the things that we really stand for and write about um, just because we don't know what the future is going to look like. And so while we're young, while we're making money, we're trying to save as much as we can and get as quickly as possible to when work is optional. So that's kind of a movement that's happening. It's still a relatively small subculture, but it's growing pretty quickly. Uh, and just thought we'd share that because you're obviously a uh, um, 
you know, just just wanted to share that with you. No, it's a really good thing. And, you know, there is something to be said for the miracle of compound interest and putting money aside younger. Yep. I mean, if you can do it, it's amazing. And I urge people to do it if they can. I mean, that's actually one of the things that so frustrates me about the student loan debt that's out there. It's really hard to do for people when they're already paying 10% or more of their income, you know, for a student loan, right? And that's a huge issue. Um, cost of living is pretty high. You know, people live in these expensive cities because that's where the jobs are. And life is not inexpensive. And this is a huge frustration to me. The that's more right. you can get aside in your 20s, the better off you will be. That's just a certain amount of common sense. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say, uh, starting off, I you know I had together with my fiance, we had a little over one hundred twenty-five thousand in student loans, and it's it is crippling. But at the same time, you know, the, it, it's sort of uh, you know there's some perks to it. You know, with the five percent interest, we get a little deduction on our tax returns. Um, and eh, you know, you'd be better off without it altogether. Yeah, I mean, but come on. But I was gonna say, <laughs> I was say the, I'm the, glad the, you got the deduction, but you'd still be better <laughs> off paying sure, taxes of course, on the money and not using and not paying it back at all, and you know it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I 100% agree. If I if it was if it was all gone, that'd be great. But I was gonna say the one interesting thing was I found that a lot of people focused overly aggressive on their student loans, and then they don't put any time away to look into investing, learn about it, or build that habit of you know either on their each paycheck a couple bucks or whatever it might be, a couple percentage points. So I, I was kind of you know, do you think student loans are impacting the way people view investing as well? Or do you think it uh, makes They them... have to be. They absolutely have to be. I mean, when you have so much money going out in this one way, it's got to have a sort of ripple effect on everything else. We know from studies from the New York Fed, the St. Louis Fed, and so on, that people with student loans, you know, it's, you know, they're less likely to buy houses, they're less likely to put as much money, put money aside for retirement or, you know, put as much aside. Um, there's even some study out of the University of Wisconsin that shows that it's impacting marriage pra- um, practices, especially among women. And this is, these are, these are huge issues for people. Um, there's no question that this is a huge issue for people. And, you know, the law seems to be shifting a lot. Um, you know, or the Obama administration did certain things to increase protections. It seems now like the Trump administration is probably going to take some of those protections off. And it's not exactly a world in which it makes people feel safe and secure about investing. You can say, well, it's student loans and it's not investing, but most people don't think of it that way. They just see it as money and money is uncertain and here's another way money is uncertain. That's how people think about it. Hey, Helene, this was a real pleasure. We're both huge fans. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. We really appreciate it and just can't wait to keep reading you and hope to stay in touch. Yeah, thanks Thank so much. you so much. Thanks for listening to Millennial Money Minutes. If you liked this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe. If you want us to cover a specific topic, use hashtag Millennial Money on Twitter or visit millennialmoneyminutes.com.